0: Looks like we got a new podcast review in, and this is on the Castbox app. So, if you're listening that way, you can check it out. It's from actually ID one eight eight nine nine seven one five. This is the first time I've listened to this podcast. I was very interested in hearing Glory Cheek talk about her business on episode one ninety six. All right, well, thanks, thanks for the review. Oh, uh, we're not done yet. Okay, here we go. I could not get halfway through this 57-minute interview. Okay, I'm sure they were busy. That's why, right? Right, guys? (laughs) I don't know your name, but you are the worst interviewer I've heard in a long time. Wow. Hopefully, I don't listen to many interviewers, but... I listen to lots of podcast... Fuck. I listen to lots of podcasts, so I guess they do listen to a lot of interviewers. Let me start that again. I listen to lots of podcasts, many different subjects, with many different people talking. I'm really sorry, but I cannot listen to you. (sighs) Bye-bye. Well, hello, hello to this episode, and hope you enjoy it.
1: And they asked us what we did and we said we'd build websites and they'd start laughing at us and said, you know, you're probably going to lose your shirt on your back. And I'm like, you don't even know us. And you're basically telling us we're worthless. That was the idea at that time. After 9-11, people actually thought the internet wasn't going to be that important. There's probably an easier way to do it than I did, but uh, I'm not sure what it is.
0: That's pretty deep. I appreciate that.
1: We actually had to borrow money to pay our employees. I put a lien on my house. Okay, money bags, you need to open a better place for us to go drink beer. And I was like, that is a absolutely terrible business plan. I think one of my most successful things is there was this kind of ridiculous story. I've actually never told it before. Yeah, I know he's not pulling his weight, but I'm not in the club. You guys have been partners for 10 years. I thought maybe this was just how it worked. Again, at the time, nobody even knew the word iteration. So I found that was a terrible brand altogether. Don't name your company iteration zero. It's funny. Kind of all the people who told us no in 2019 became our customers in 2020. My name is Tim McLaughlin. I am the co-founder of GoTab. We're based in the Northern Virginia, DC metro area. I actually just turned 45 yesterday.
0: Oh, happy birthday.
1: Thank you. And so... We're trying to change a lot of things about really e-commerce in general, but currently focused on restaurants and hospitality.
0: So what's GoTab?
1: GoTab started as a payments company in 2016. We were focused on trying to make paying in restaurant less painful. So you know, when you're trying to flag a server to get your check and leave, that's been a problem in hospitality for a very long time. That was the initial goal. Just some quick background. I, at the time, owned two restaurant breweries. And just we were at maximum capacity and we could never quite get hit any more revenue because we were constrained by our ability to turn tables, as they say in the industry.
0: So, yeah, you had two restaurants and with your waiters and waitresses, they weren't getting to the tables fast enough to get people out. So you invented an app to make this happen faster.
1: It wasn't an app. That was actually the thing that was unusual at the time in 2016. It was all browser based. Everybody who is trying to solve this problem, which there were plenty of companies trying to solve it at the time, tell me if you would want to go into a restaurant and install an app to pay your bill. It's a huge hurdle and just people didn't do it. And so what we were trying to do with GoTab was do it all on a browser, on a phone, and we were mildly more successful, but we really didn't crack the code until 2018 when we rolled out ordering in addition to payment. So started in 2016 as payment and expanded to ordering. We started building the ordering product in 2017 and rolled it out in 2018. Again, this is all focused on what we call dine-in in in restaurants. So you're sitting at a table. The original product was really just paying, which is a pain point in hospitality in the sense that you can't get your check sometimes when you want to leave, even if you have good service. And our particular problem was when you get really slammed, people just don't get back to the tables as fast as they want to. And so the guest is sitting there, they want to leave, the server doesn't get to them, they can't pay. So as a result, you can't get a new customer in that seat. You can't get a new order to that customer. And as a result, you just get less revenue than you could potentially get per square foot. That's how GoTab started. We expanded to ordering because that was the next identified pain point for the guest, And that rolled out in 2018. And we saw at peak times, and this was 2018, which was before anybody in the United States really know what a QR code was. And we rolled out QR code-based ordering simultaneous to the iPhone supporting QR codes in October. And we saw 60% of guests would use order to the table using the QR code. And it was a pretty crude first version, really. But going from 3% adoption with the prior product for payment to 60% adoption during peak hours was a pretty huge adoption curve, I suppose.
0: Yeah. And so how big is your company today?
1: We're forty-five people. Can you
0: give us an estimate of revenue?
1: We're about a twelve million revenue, ten to twelve million. It's growing very quickly.
0: Well, that's good. It makes you look bigger no matter what, right? Because that's all the revenue coming in, like the restaurant that's being ordered on there, as far as the revenue.
1: No, that's our cut. Okay, wow. No, it's it's much, much bigger. And it depends on the deal structure and all that sort of stuff. We operate more like a you can think of this like a stripe. We get paid per payment, so we get a percentage of the payment—a very small percentage, single digit. Can
0: anyone who owns a restaurant sign up?
1: Yeah, we have new operators signing up every single day.
0: Okay, so what happens if someone owns a restaurant and is listening right now?
1: Well, if you go to goTab.io or goTab.com, you will see our actual transactional site at the bottom. You'll click a link and you go to about.goTab.com, which is really the informational site for operators, hospitality. And the reason I say hospitality is it's not just restaurants, hotels are a big part of our business for like in-room dining or ordering to the pool or ordering to the beach. And then you also get into things like entertainment, where you have like sports or bowling or golf or things like that, where you're eating and you're doing something else. So that's also a growing part of our business, especially as COVID starting to get people back into venues to enjoy themselves again.
0: You said you've been at it for about four years as far as the company?
1: Well, five now, 2016 to 2021.
0: And has it gone as smoothly as you wanted? Or, you know, it sounds like a pretty big company as far as within four to five years getting to this size.
1: My answer would be hell no. It never goes as smoothly as I want it to go. And there's constant curves in business, in my experience. So as I said, the 2016 product, I would argue that was a failure. We had a hypothesis, we were slightly more right than the people before us. The people before us being companies, there was a company called Tabbed Out. They raised $40 million way back, and they had an app and you could pay your bill. And that was essentially it. So we were seeing 3% adoption, which is not very good in terms of people sort of jumping to the technology. So I would say our first version in 2016 wasn't right. And really it wasn't until 2018 that we said, aha, we, we have something.
0: And that something was right when you started, you're like, hey, I need to go to the menu and then it kind of forces people to use it?
1: No, it didn't force. That was the thing that was interesting is that in 2018, ordering from a QR in the United States was not something people did. In fact, I don't really know anybody who was doing it at the time. I actually know for a fact we had no real competition doing this. It was actually commonplace and still is commonplace in China. So we weren't the only people who came up with this idea. QRs are everywhere in Asia. And we were really taking a page out of their book and said, I think this is relevant. And I think it's something that will translate to the U.S. COVID made it happen much faster. I can tell you when we were selling QR-based ordering in 2019 and prior to COVID in 2020, probably only one in 20 restaurant operators knew what a QR was or didn't think we were crazy. So we definitely had lots of people who said, oh, that's kind of cool, but not for me. And numerously, a lot of the people who told us in 2020 that it's interesting, but not for me, are actually a lot of the people who signed up in the first two months of COVID.
0: Makes sense, right? hmm Do we need to know anything else about GoTab before rewind it and understand how you got started with that and what you did even before that?
1: I don't know. I mean, with GoTab, is really to help other businesses grow. So that's something that we've made a commitment to is that we intend to continue to lower our prices as is possible with new technology, with new payment models, whether it be you know Bitcoin or you name it in the future, whatever the best way to efficiently transact is something we want to be able to bring to hospitality operators because at the end of the day, we want to improve the experience and reduce the cost burden for those businesses because they're the ones making the experience. We're just trying to make it easier. Well, can you pay with GameStop? Uh, <laughs> not today.
0: Or Dogecoin, right? One of those two?
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't know if we're going to be doing Dogecoin anytime soon, but we'll see. I
0: like cats. I might have to come up with cat coin. What do you think about that?
1: I like that idea. I don't know if cats would be willing to be a coin, though, to be honest. Dogs would be much more willing.
0: Yeah, but someone's already taken that. So I feel it'd be easy play off that, right?
1: I suppose. I mean, you just have to get a bullhorn like the guy pushing Dogecoin to get people interested.
0: I just need to start a Reddit thread and then I'll be rich.
1: Something like that. I think maybe some electric vehicles and rocket ships would get some notoriety.
0: Or I could buy some NFTs. I'm sure you know about those.
1: I was just looking at an article on that. It's ridiculous.
0: Let me guess how much did it sell for? I think
1: 66 million or something like that.
0: Yeah. It might've been 69. I think I remember that number. Okay. Well, regardless, it was 60 something million for a JPEG.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I don't get it, but I spend all of 10 seconds on it.
0: Same here. I just see the headline. I think most smart business people don't get into it, like get into the news really, but something business oriented like that, I'm just like, I'll look at it for a minute, but it's really just kind of looking at the headline and then that might be the future. I don't know if you can integrate GoTab with NFTs somehow, but maybe that's the future there.
1: I don't really know what the concept is to tell you the truth yet. I'll have to read about it. I will admit that when I'm kind of in my business zone, I actually try not to read the news to a certain degree because it's just a distraction. A lot of the news I don't care about. Unfortunately, over the last year with COVID and the politics of our country, I felt sort of morally obligated to know what was going on. But now that I feel like we're in a relatively sane, sane I'm not saying great, but relatively sane place, we're not quite as explosive, I suppose, as the country. I feel like I can at least ignore it. As I said to my parents when the election was done, I was like, great, government can be boring again. I prefer boring and mildly annoying.
0: I think we all do. (laughs) Energetic Austin here, and after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after speaking with them and using their service, it all made sense. There isn't one catch at all. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. By cutting out retail stores, there's no crazy overhead costs and they get passed down to you in the form of mystery fees. Instead, Mint just passes on sweet savings direct to you. The quality of Mint is outstanding, just like this ad read. For people looking for extra savings, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their seven-day money-back guarantee. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash millionaire. That's mintmobile.com slash millionaire and cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash millionaire. Hey, Freddie and friends, it's Energetic Austin here. Are you itching to get back to what you love? Me too. I can't wait to enjoy travel with my friends and family. But you know what? This time, I want to make sure the next time I head to the airport, my experience is fast, safe, and easy as possible. That's why I'm excited to talk about Clear today. See, Clear is a secure identity platform that creates frictionless journeys at airports and beyond. Move faster through airport security and feel confident returning to who, where, and what you love. With Clear, all you need is you. After a quick one-time enrollment with your government-issued ID, you can use just your face or eyes for safer, touchless entry at airports, stadiums, and more. Guess what? You can also create your account online before going to the airport. Once you get there, a friendly ambassador helps you finish the process and you can use Clear immediately. Join over 5.5 million people who are already using Clear. Once you become a member, you can use Clear for faster, touchless, seamless entry across Clear's network at airports, stadiums, arenas, concert spaces, office, restaurants, and so much more. Clear members can add up to three friends or family members to their account for a discounted rate. And even better, kids under 18 can tag along for free. You know, I just signed up for Clear and I can't wait to start using it. I guess the only problem for me is... I don't have any friends, so I don't have anyone that I can give my discounted rate to. But you know what? Clear is such an awesome deal that even if I had friends, they don't need that friendship discount. Clear is the absolute best way to help you get back to what you love. They have locations in over 35 airports across the country, making it safer, easier, and faster. Tree night with loved ones or take that much needed vacation. It works great with pre-check too. And right now, for a limited time, you can get your first two months of Clear for free. Go to clearme.com slash millionaire and use code millionaire. That's C-L-E-A-R-M-E dot com slash millionaire and use code millionaire for your first two months of Clear for free. clearme.com slash millionaire and use code millionaire so yeah why don't we rewind it to how you got started as an entrepreneur
1: well i moved around a lot as a kid my dad was a small business person and my mom was a physical therapist so it just kind of grew up in a household where you had to do stuff to get by i was born off farm and kind of did whatever i had to do around the house to help as we moved around i was always trying to come up with ways to make money as a kid I think one of my most successful things is there was this kind of ridiculous story. I've actually never told it before. There was like these trendy bracelets in school. And I think I was in eighth grade and I realized, hey, I can make these bracelets. And I think I made $300, which at the time was pretty killer income in eighth grade. So I've I've always had an interest in making things that people want. Not so much making money. Money was like a side effect that I benefited from. But when people want it and I go, I can make that, then it just kind of, I get the itch and I, I go figure out how to make it. I
0: guess we're opposites because I like make podcast episodes and no one wants them. So I'll try though. <laughs> Maybe one day I'll be on your level.
1: I think a couple people listen to your podcast from what I can tell.
0: You and my mom. So, well, actually my mom stopped listening. So just you.
1: I tried to tell my family not to listen to my stuff too.
0: Understood. Well, so you're born on a farm where?
1: Basically West Virginia, south of Pittsburgh. It was right on the border, of West Virginia and Pennsylvania. And then moved around. Like I said, I grew up. Son of a small business person and did some computer consulting in high school just to make money. And I loved computers. And then ultimately tried to go work for Lockheed Martin fresh out of college and quickly found that that was not for me. Just it was very bureaucratic and very hard to do anything. And I was someone who liked to build stuff and I found I was sort of strangled with bureaucracy. And then instead went to a small consultancy, helped them grow it, realized I was making a whole bunch of money for somebody else and not really empowered and asked for some equity. He said no. And so I left. And what year was that? Let's see. I started SiteWorks in 2002. So that would have been in 2001. It would have been right after 9-11 happened. I was having to do a round of layoffs. So when I started that company, it was six people. I was the ripe age of 23, I think, 22, 23. And it grew to 35 people. And at the time in those two years from 99 to 2001, all of the people, except for the front desk person and maybe two other people reported to me. So I was probably the youngest employee and also had the most reports. So that's why you felt comfortable
0: asking for equity. Cause I think most people listening be like, okay, you know, you're like 21. I guess you had just come out of college. You're only there for two years. If you're asking for equity, it might seem like a lot to some people, but then like you're saying, it seems like everyone reported to you and it was like 30 plus people.
1: It was weird. I will say the owner was very gracious and very nice, but he didn't come into the office most of the days. So I kind of didn't know what I was worth, but what was odd was I was literally paying people who worked for me much more than what I got paid. And then I'd had to fix their work. At some point I realized it really was not an equal or fair model. And then it kind of hit the wall in 2001 after 9-11 and we had to cut because we were a contracting company, we had to cut a whole bunch of people. I think I laid off 15 people or something like that. It became no fun, right? So I'm letting people go and I have no equity in this company. And I mean, I could have kept my job and rode it all the way to the end. I let one round of people go. I told the owner, I was going to go through this and have to lay people off and have to push through all this stuff. You know, I wanted equity in the company because it seemed like everybody else at the time in 2000 was getting equity in the company stock options or something like that. And so he said, no. I said, well, I'm going to quit then. And I don't know if he knew I was serious, but I was, so I quit. He probably thought it was crazy because it was just after 9-11 and you couldn't get a job anywhere.
0: And where was the company located?
1: It was in Tyson's Corner, the DC metro area. So it's nine o'clock on the Beltway, if you know the DC area at all.
0: So is this where you went right after West Virginia? Because you said you were born and raised in West Virginia. I know you went to West Virginia University.
1: Yep sort of, I moved around a lot, but I did end up going back there for uh, university.
0: And so, yeah, you're outside DC and you tell this company that, hey, you're going to quit because you didn't feel you weren't getting equity. And what'd you do? Like you told us very quickly that you started your own company, but how much money did you have saved up and what were your next steps to start up your next company?
1: I didn't have a lot of money saved up. The money we had saved up was really a result of making some good stock trades and being uh, very thrifty with our home life and buying a house at the right time in the market as well. So we had some stock. So you were buying GameStop even back then? No, I wasn't. I think my stock back then, I'm actually not sure what my stocks were. I used to make a ton of money on Apple because when everybody would bet against Apple, I would bet for Apple. That worked out well. Some other stocks like that, but they weren't really sexy in 2001. But whatever it was, it worked out all right. I had some money set aside. So I ended up doing a little bit of consulting for a year. So I didn't start SiteWorks right after that. I actually had no plans, which is probably a terrible idea.
0: And were you married?
1: I was married. Yep. What'd
0: your wife think about you quitting?
1: She was fine with it. Like I said, she worked. We had a house. We lived pretty modestly. So we didn't really have any serious financial needs. We didn't have kids.
0: I'm feeling you, but just to put it in perspective again, I didn't know if you need both your incomes.
1: Yeah, I was 20 at that time. So I worked at this company, BCS, for two years. I graduated when I was 23 and then moved to DC. So I would have been 25. But you didn't need
0: both your incomes to pay the mortgage and everything?
1: No, we didn't really.
0: That's really good, especially then, because a lot of people were buying houses they really couldn't afford and they really couldn't. Oh, for sure. You did it smart. You didn't use 100% of your income to fund it.
1: Yeah, it's probably the farm boy frugal background. But yeah, so we essentially didn't need it. I quit. I wanted to write some software that I've been wanting to do for a while, which was a what's called a content management system. At the time, there was something that wasn't everywhere, highly available, and so I started doing that. You know, just work from home and did some consulting as well, just to kind of pick up some cash. I made a whopping thirty-five thousand dollars. And then the benefit, though, is the product I wrote in that year from two thousand one to two thousand two. I joined some partners in 2002 who I'd met previously while I was consulting. And they had said, hey, we're going to leave. We sold our company to a big dot com, which blew up and went to zero. So we're going to go start another consulting company, except for they wanted to make a content management system software as a service. I think early days of WordPress, but at the time focused on big corporations because big corporations don't usually use WordPress. They use more sophisticated systems. And that's the kind of stuff we did. And so that was the idea. It was like, we're going to roll out WordPress. You'll just sign up for it online. You'll build a website. My partners actually had a background in design and they're going to use my system. So what ended up happening is in 2002, we formed a company called Siteworks. There were four initial partners and we bought my software that I'd written for the prior year, but it was only going to get paid out if Siteworks ever made money. So I sold the assets, if you will, into uh, Siteworks. And then You know, the four of us started selling websites. So were you excited about that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the guys who I joined up with were 10 years my senior. They had built and sold not a huge company, but a multi-million dollar company at the time. And I was a ripe age of 26. I was actually not the CEO. I was a CTO.
0: And I was looking at Siteworks at S-I-T-E-W-O-R-X.
1: Yeah, it's been rebranded. I sold it to a private equity group. And they since have changed it into a company called Shift7.
0: Okay. Because SiteWorks, if you go to it now, I'm sure you have, you Googled it?
1: I have not, honestly.
0: If you just Google it, then it's SiteWorks Ohio. It's all these construction cranes, different types of site.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was actually around back then, but they did not come up on the first page of search results.
0: I believe you. This might be their webpage from back then (laughs) too, still.
1: (laughs) Probably is. (laughs) Actually, if you look in the right, it still has us in Google Maps. That was our office and that is where the headquarters was. At least I don't know if they're showing for you.
0: Yeah, I think it's just showing for you because you're close. For me, I'm showing Lebanon, Ohio.
1: Yeah, no, that's not it.
0: Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I guess before we get to that part, you basically sold it to the new company that you did with your friends. Correct, yeah. What was it called?
1: It was called this was SiteWorks. The company before that was like a totally ill-conceived technical name called Iteration Zero. And which of course Again, at the time, nobody even knew the word iteration. So I found that was a terrible brand altogether. Don't name your company iteration zero. Anyway, so we sold the assets to Siteworks. Siteworks was formed with four partners and we signed our first contract the next day for you know a home builder. who had like, I don't know, 500 homes or something to build their website. And that was kind of how we started.
0: It's come full circle now that we just saw. So SiteWorks construction company. Right, there sold you go. To. <laughs> construction housing company. All right. So yeah, that was your first client was a construction housing company. And then- It was. How long were you with these guys at SiteWorks, your partners, and how much did you grow it to?
1: So that was interesting. It was myself and the, the other three. So there was a, the head of creative because it was a web design company. And then there's the CEO who was the his predominant responsibility with sales. And then there was one other guy whose job was uh, project management. And so it quickly reduced to three of us for a number of reasons, but essentially it became the two senior guys and myself. And it was a rough time. I will say 2002 is not a great time unless you're Google, unless you're based in the Valley and you went to Stanford. It was a very interesting time to have a technology company of any sort. I very specifically have like, probably scarred into my brain a moment where we went, we left our office and we went to a nearby bar to have some beers. And there was just a random table of dudes sitting next to us. And we were talking about work and what we were doing and whatever the websites were. And somehow we got chatting with the guys next to us who were, I think they were lawyers. And they asked us what we did. And we said we built websites. And they'd started laughing at us and said, you know, you're probably going to lose your shirt on your back. And I'm like, you don't even know us. And you're basically telling us we're worthless. But that was the idea at that time. I mean, if you aren't old enough to remember, you probably don't recall the sentiment. But after 9-11, people actually thought the internet wasn't going to be that important. It's totally unfathomable right now. But this was like this hard jerk away from digital and internet. And uh, it was palpable.
0: And how long did it take to get out from underneath that? Again, this is kind of your first full year. So your first full year sounds like it didn't go too well.
1: It was hard. We actually had to borrow money to pay our employees. I put a lien on my house. Luckily, we had some equity in our house. And we really did work 100, 120 hours a week. It was painful. It was good camaraderie. And I will say myself and the chief creative officer, Rand Kramer, who humorously at the time probably Were the least likely people to be friends and colleagues because I was super technical and probably kind of arrogant because I was, you know, I loved my technology and not necessarily someone who tried to listen to an image person. And I kind of see the world as there's symbol people and there's image people or emotional people who are, are much more dialed into other people's feelings and perceptions. And he was one of those people. And so, me being, you know, sort of a science data guy meant that I didn't always hear everything he said. So we were very unlikely, but we were stuck in the office for 12 hours a day. And eventually we harbored some resentment to our then CEO who was not selling what we thought was acceptable, which in hindsight may have been unfair because it was 2003, 2004. And frankly, no one could sell a website because no one was investing in websites. And it may not have been the CEO's fault but he would leave the office at 4 p.m. Myself and Rand would stay in the office till 11 and come back in the next morning at six. And it felt pretty terrible. And so we ultimately, the two of us, forced out the third partner. So we had no CEO. (laughs) Uh, Probably not the best way to run a business. So we had no CEO for, I think, the next year or two, because I was still CTO, didn't feel confident enough to take on that role. And then Rand, who is our chief creative officer, that was not his skill.
0: How many people were in the company at that point?
1: Probably 10, 11, something like that. We had a really interesting company. We were operating on a shoestring. And, you know, we had to, like I said, at times borrow money to make payroll. We had just an amazing culture. Uh, we were, I was really fortunate to work with a guy. Well, I don't know if I should say names, but a guy who was legally blind. And so he was an amazing inspiration, amazing person.
0: I think that's all right. Why don't you say his name? Cause I mean, it's a positive thing, right?
1: Oh yeah, I know. His name's Gene Skinicki. He's a lawyer now, actually. So he was remarkable, super amazing person. What I will tell you is that he was employee number eight. Working with him made everybody's work seem easier, right? Because you just imagine what his day was trying to get to the office and not get run over by traffic, which he would walk to the office across a six lane stoplight, which was probably unsafe for a sighted person. And you just really couldn't complain. <laughs> That's what it boiled down to. So he's an amazing person. had a great time working with him. And it did really kind of form our culture. We got a lucky break at the time. In 2006, we won a whole bunch of contracts with AOL, who was still quite big and quite relevant at the time. And we were helping them transition from their sort of AOL walled garden onto the internet. So that was kind of something that helped us a ton. It didn't last forever, which made a whole nother cascade of consequences into our business. But it was definitely a lucky break in 2003.
0: And when y'all got rid of the third partner, were y'all just split evenly on the equity?
1: Yeah, we were split evenly.
0: So how do you take care of that? Did you already have papers drawn up? Because I imagine there's people listening now. I guess if you and the other partner are vibing and y'all are working a lot of hours, and obviously the third partner, you feel like it's not putting in their hours to help the business. Like, how did you handle that? And would you do anything differently?
1: It's hard to say I would do anything differently because it's hindsight, right? I don't know if I can guess anything. In the end, it worked out very well for myself and the other remaining partner because we did sell the company for roughly $50 million. But that was many years later. That was in 2012. And I don't know that my co-founder who made it all the way through the end thought that would happen. We really, since we built three businesses over the duration, because we had that rough patch at the beginning. We had a big boom from AOL. There was a new CEO who came into AOL who literally turned off the spigot, which more or less sent AOL out of business, but they stopped all of our contracts. And that was in 2006. And so we had a client, which if you're ever in the services business, one of the things they talk about being a really bad thing is client concentration. You ideally don't want any clients to be more than 10% of your revenue because if that client decides, hey, you know, we don't like these vendors anymore, they turn you off and you're out of business. So we were super, super exposed in that regard. And so we basically had to rebuild the whole business with all new clients because at the time they represented about 60% of our business.
0: Did you buy that third partner out or did you already have documents already set up? No, we did not. How'd that work?
1: Well, it was interesting because similar to my first business where I felt like I was not necessarily being recognized for my work. And maybe this says something about me. Maybe I'm not fair. I'm I'm not sure. But two years after we got rid of the founding CEO, oh, just for the record, he is a good guy. (laughs) In later years, we chatted and he's a good person. I don't hold it against him. It was a hard circumstance. And understandably, he was quite angry at the time, although he was getting pushed out of a company that was sucking wind. So it might have been a blessing. But going back to how do we transition equity? How do we hit an uneven equity arrangement? Because I do think it's really hard to have equal partners going all the way through to success. And maybe that's what you're getting at. What I ended up doing is I took all my savings, all the cash that I invested in stocks and otherwise, and approached him and said, I want to buy X percentage of the company to take a majority position. There were two reasons. One was a majority of the clients. An overwhelming majority of the clients were clients that I had brought in or worked with. And so in a sense, I could have, although I don't know that I would have, I could have said, okay, well, I'm going to start my own competing consulting business. I never went that way. Luckily, he was a pretty reasonable person and said, look, if you think you can make this work, then yeah, I'll sell it to you at this price, which was a reasonable price. And so he put some cash in the bank and I took some equity and said, I'm even more motivated to drive faster and harder and then did so. But did you buy them all the way out? No, I did not buy them all the way out. I mean, in hindsight, that would have been the best move maybe, but I didn't feel like that was... First off, I didn't have enough cash to do it because by that time we were doing about 3 million in revenue and that just wasn't an option.
0: You said y'all had him go away and that ended up just being the two of y'all. So did he own... Equity percent all the way till your fifty million dollar sale in twenty twelve. Yes, he did. Oh, well, that's good for him.
1: Yeah, it worked really well for him.
0: I mean, just thinking about it, you know, it stinks if you get kicked out. But you're like, I thought y'all just kind of kicked him out. They say you should always plan for divorce right when you're starting a business, but most people, I don't think, do. I mean, it's hard to think negatively when you're getting started, but just thinking about the way to go about it, you know, how do you get that third quote unquote partner out? If you feel like they're not pulling their weight and for you, it sounded like you bought some of his equity and then y'all asked him at that same point, Hey, we don't need you right now or ever again.
1: <laughs> the first two partners were more acrimonious. So the, the very first partner who was pushed out was pushed out for a very specific reason. And then the second partner of the four was pushed out for basically not doing his job and his job was predominantly sales. And so the question in hindsight would have been, well, could he have sold into a market that didn't buy anything? I mean, maybe, maybe not. And you always want to ask any salesperson, like, are you not selling because you suck? Are you not selling because no one wants to buy what we have? That's a hard question. But regardless, myself and the third partner were sitting in the office for 12 to 16 hour days and inevitably he approached me because remember all 3 of them were already in a prior business all 3 of them came from a pre-existing business so they all had 10 years of relationships already built i was the odd man out this one partner said hey i don't think mike the ceo is really pulling his weight he leaves the office at 4:30 and he's not selling and i was like yeah i know he's not pulling his weight but i'm not in the club you guys have been partners for 10 years i thought maybe this is just how it worked And he said, no, I don't think this is how it works. And I was like, well, if you want me to figure out how to get this done, I'll get it done. And then I called some lawyers and went through our paperwork. And luckily, to his credit, the CEO actually set up very good operational partnership paperwork that basically said, if you don't do your job, and the majority of the shareholders say you're not doing your job, and we were very clear about it, then we were able to buy him out at an agreed upon price, which was very low.
0: Which sounds reasonable too, because... If it's him, he knows if he goes home early or goes home after six hours or whatever. And he knows if y'all are working longer. Obviously, he didn't love the situation he was in either because if he loved it, then he'd stay as long as y'all. You know, so it's still doing him a right thing, too. Obviously, he wasn't passionate about it for multiple reasons or maybe one or whatever. But So it sounds good that you had exactly what I was alluding to the operational partnership set up that you had that versus just three random guys who say, let's build a business together.
1: <laughs> I had the fortune really of joining partners who had been through it before. Like I said, I was 26, they were 36. So they had already done this. They knew that good paperwork was a good thing. And there were some very specific clauses in our partnership. we were technically an S corporation, but there were some very specific terms that made it clear of, hey, you know, if this occurs, these are how you can resolve them. There were some other interesting things we learned that again can never really even thought about where like our spouses had to meet each other and had to meet our partners to make sure this was actually going to work. Because at least in an early partnership like this, it's going to take over your life. And if your spouses or significant others are not signed up for this, it's probably not going to work for somebody. So they were smart enough to say like, Hey, we need to make sure all of us and all of our spouses are into this because it's not easy.
0: Oh yeah, you stole my next question because that's what I was thinking. Of. I'm like, I had it in my head, and then I forgot it, and then you just brought it up. If you said you were working that long, sounds like you're still somewhat newlywed. I guess you don't have a kid yet still. I'm not sure, but what did your spouse specifically think about you working this much?
1: She would have said I was a workaholic, although she doesn't use that term anymore. She was happy that I was uh, you know, pursuing my dreams, so she was supportive. There were definitely times when she wanted to murder me. And there were times when she would try to force me to not work as much, but when something became critical, she would always figure out a way to accommodate me.
0: Did that ever work out? Did you ever not work as much?
1: No, as as we were talking about earlier, as we got up above, you know, sort of 50 people started feeling, and, and even really around 35, 40 people started feeling like the other people were taking on the reins. We were able to hire more seasoned leaders. And, you know, I was not always working anything like that. By 2006, everything was humming and then of course AOL ripped the rug out from under us. And so then we had another two years of kind of like grinding again. But by 2009, we were humming and we had a clear path to an exit. So really by that time, I only had a couple of responsibilities which were like planning, strategy and sales. In my new company at GoTab, I'm not coding anymore but I do look at the code and I am paying attention to our architecture and I'm in the weeds every day talking to clients Looking at a lot of details that in my first company, Siteworks, I no longer touched any code. I kind of had a vague idea where it was and what was happening, but I wasn't in the weeds to that degree.
0: So, yeah, I guess you alluded to selling this company for 50 million in 2012. Yep. We know you do GoTab now, but I mean, at that point in time, did you have enough that you didn't have to work anymore after selling Siteworks?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, but I was 36. And candidly, I have no intentions of stopping working. I don't know what I would do anyway.
0: But after you sold it at that point in time, probably, like you said, just a workaholic all the way throughout. Maybe even obviously sounds like maybe still today. But did you take any time to relax or do anything else?
1: Actually, we had a wonderful year. The year afterward, we got a RV. Your wife divorced you? <laughs> no, we we had a camper.
0: <laughs> she was waiting for your sale. <laughs> no, she
1: amazingly she hung out with me after that even more, which is stunning because at the end of my business, I was traveling almost fifty percent of the time. But we essentially bought an RV camper trailer, and every year for the next three years, we would take a month and go camping somewhere in the U.S.
0: I'm here with Jonathan Cogley. How are you doing, Jonathan?
2: Hi, Austin. Doing great. Thanks.
0: Cool. Uh, Jonathan actually interviewed him on episode 85, and he actually helped a lot of our business founders on group call 14. So if you're a Patreon member, you can check that out. So your company is Logic Boost Labs. Can you tell us a little bit more about it?
2: Sure. So we're a startup accelerator. We're based in San Diego, and we work with startups that are early revenue or pre-revenue. So you've got a great business idea. Maybe you've validated the market. You've got one or two customers or maybe a few beta customers and you're looking to grow your business. We're the accelerator that would help you. We have three startup partners already. One is in Israel, one is in Tennessee, and one is in LA. And we're looking to add two new startups within the next four months. So
0: if people wanted to find out more about you, what's the best way for them to reach you?
2: Definitely visit our website. So logicboostlabs.com millionaire. Sign up for a free mentoring session with me. We'll talk about your business and see if you're a good fit.
0: Okay, so it's free to sign up.
2: Yeah, we're looking for startups It doesn't cost anything. We're looking to do a free mentoring session with them, learn a little bit more about their business and see if it's a good fit for our team. So our team would then bring angel investment so we can write checks up to say $300,000 and we also include services. So we might be able to provide a VP of sales to help get your startup going. It could be, you know, customer success help. It could be technical help. We have a CTO on staff. And yeah, that's the approach. We basically accelerate your startup and give you a better chance of being successful. And our goal is to take startups from effectively $0 to 1 million ARR. And where do they need to go to one more time, Jonathan? Logicboostlabs.com slash millionaire. And we're looking to add two new startups within the next four months.
0: Have you had a chance to listen to any of the past group calls or anything like that yet? Yeah, I've listened to a couple of them. Even if somebody had a business that was completely unrelated to anything I was doing, They were still throwing in invaluable nuggets of information just constantly so i've been listening and you know i'd like to start getting in on some of the group calls i'd like to start really engaging with other people in the community and just learning and devouring as much as i can all right with the power of podcasting i'm back with tim hey tim
1: hey how's it going austin
0: because i think comcast heard me talking shit about them on a different podcast my interview with you got cut short. The internet to my house just stopped for a couple hours while we were doing our interview. And that's literally the first time this happened in 200 plus interviews. So I appreciate you scheduling after we just started our doing our first recording. So this is part two. And luckily it cut off in a good transition period of the interview, right?
1: Yep. If I remembered what that was, I'd be uh, doing well.
0: Yeah. Who's your internet provider?
1: So I'm on Verizon and that was actually my own fault. I was planning some stuff for, uh, for Easter in my garden and found out where my Fios cable was buried. <laughs> With a shovel? With a shovel. It was a very clean break. And I was like, huh, that looks like fiber. And I pulled up my phone. And I'm like, yep, that was my internet.
0: Now you're using your phone internet to complete this interview because now internet on your side shut down. So now we're even. And I think the people are ready to hear the rest of this interview. But there was one other interesting thing that happened as well, because you and I both alluded to when you're building a business, I don't think people have time to listen to the news. Like you've got to get zoned in to your business. If you're spending time worrying about what's going on in politics or anything else, then it's just a waste of time. But I specifically brought up one random instance just because I saw the headline about an NFT and it was about a guy had just bought one for $69.3 million. Do you remember me bringing that up? Yeah, absolutely. What happened is, is I actually interviewed the guy who bought that. That's wild. That's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So it's episode 19. That happened in between. So I think everything happens for a reason, Tim. And I was like, at that point in time, they said someone had bought it for 69.3 million, but they didn't say the person's name. And then they said the person's name a week later. The guy's name is Vignesh Sundarisen. They released his name in between like last week. And so now we're doing, like I said, the second part of this interview just a little bit later, but it's funny that how everything works out. i never ever bring up news stories or anything like that. And that was just a happenstance as well. So I just found that interesting. So now that we're even on the internet and now that we found the guy who bought a JPEG for $69 million, supposedly, I still think it's bullshit. I don't think there's any way this guy bought this for $69 million.
1: It doesn't make any sense to me. I will say that for sure. I mean, Bitcoin makes far more sense to me.
0: Yeah, this is why I tell my wife: if you're like 32 or 33 years old right now, you must be a billionaire, right? I think you bought it said with a partner. So even if you spent 35 million buying it, like how much net worth you have? Or maybe you just did that for fun, and that was 100 percent your net worth.
1: I mean, according to the article I read, which I of course read after you mentioned to your point, I actually try explicitly not to follow the news all the time because. It is just a brain suck for no necessarily good reason. Obviously, that the last, you know, depending on how you dialed into the last election you were, there was some people felt a civic duty to pay attention to the news. But now that that's done, like I feel like I no longer have a civic duty. Government's back to being boring and mostly just annoying, which is totally great with me. I read that article and, and apparently he lives a modest life, according to what the article said. He must collect some immodest art. I know (laughs) for
0: living such a modest lifestyle. Why are you going to waste it on a JPEG? Like, I don't know. (laughs) I might have to have him back on and we'll find out. But anyhow, I think the people are ready for us to get back to your interview. So thank you for bullshitting with me for a little bit. And hopefully, everyone has enjoyed what's happened in between our interviews. So the part we had left off was you actually had just sold Siteworks and it sounded like you needed some vacation time. So you got an RV, traveled around with your wife, and that's basically where we're back at. So what did you end up doing from there? Did you start a new business? And if so, what happened?
1: They kept me on to transition to the new CEO at Siteworks. And so I spent a couple of years there sort of handing that off. Simultaneously co-founded a brewery, which became two breweries with a partner. And I would say reasonably active in that, although it was always sort of after hours work. And then ultimately ended up opening yet another business to a beer distributor. So those are kind of like side businesses. My wife eventually took over the brewery restaurant portion of it. That's long and elaborate because alcohol laws are very interesting and kind of Byzantine. But um, that's essentially what happened from sort of 2012 to 2015 is when we opened the doors on Caboose Brewing, which is the first restaurant brewery we opened. Honestly, it started as a joke because when I sold my company, one of my friends, his exact words are like, okay, money bags. He didn't know if I had money or not. That's how he made the pitch to me, okay, money bags, you need to open a better place for us to go drink beer. And I was like, that is a absolutely terrible business plan. And I am a beer nerd, have been a beer nerd for a long time. It happened to coincide with Virginia legalizing direct to consumer sales from breweries, meaning that you don't have the requirement to sell through a distributor, which is by law required in most places. And it was happening all over the country at that time in Virginia, which is where I live, just recently allowed it. And I ran the economics and I kind of said, well, maybe there is a business here, maybe like not a money losing business. And so ended up kind of opening it never to be my primary job, but really to be something that would be fun and different from what I did previously, which was, you know, mostly sitting in conference rooms and living in very abstract ideas. So this is kind of a concrete thing. Put your hands on it, could eat it, drink it, you know, very tangible. So did you put all the money into it? Yeah. We rented some space. We bought a bunch of equipment. Hired a chef, hired a brewer, and pretty much built the whole team up from the ground. It was fun. I mean, we did do some pretty innovative processes because I don't know if I mentioned it earlier, but I'm actually a mechanical engineer, which was I enjoy, but never got to use as a uh, software developer or user experience designer, which is what I did at Siteworks mostly, or managed people who did those things. In this case, I got to actually think about managing heat and energy efficiency, and materials, and shipping logistics, and all kinds of stuff. So it was just a fun change. When we opened the second brewery, we did a super unconventional process, which is my brewer said I was crazy when I suggested it. Which is we actually ship what's called in brewing it's called wort. I don't know how much you know about brewing, or do you know anything about beer brewing?
0: I know just slightly, but I do know again everything happens for a reason it is national beer day
1: oh yeah it is I <laughs> saw someone say that yeah there you
0: go i wasn't even gonna bring this because again i don't like to bring up dates but i'm just breaking all my rules for this interview because i'm like dude everything happens for a reason They're like a national brewing day oh yeah and it's national health day today as well i so saw i'm like i don't think those should be the same day but whatever
1: <laughs> well that's funny you bring that up so my wife's actually a nutritionist so the brewery started because we wanted a better place to go eat and drink. And there weren't a lot of restaurants in our town at the time. And, and it's on the bike trail, and I'm a cyclist. And so that was kind of how it got started, is kind of this joke. And then I told my partner, I was like, if you find a place on the bike trail, I'll pay for it. I'll rent it. And then I'll finance the, uh, all the build-out. That's kind of how it got going. He found the space, and we pulled the trigger. When we opened the second place, which was much bigger than the first place, which is called Caboose Commons, in the brewing process, there's the hot side and the cold side, as they would say. Like You have what's called the kettle, which is where you boil the wort, and the wort eventually comes back down to room temperature, and then you actually chill it. Depending on the temperature, it'll be like anywhere between 50s to sort of high 60s, depending on what type of beer you're making. 50s is actually pretty cold. Yeast stops being active, but it'll be different temperature ranges for different desired beer types and yeast. And Rather than spending a whole bunch of money on the second place, we actually ship warped from one brewery to the next brewery, which is a weird thing to do. So we have like a stainless steel, looks like a milk truck that goes from one brewery to the other brewery and it saved us a bunch of capital in terms of build out and it saved us uh, square footage and it also saved us money in operations. But my brewer said I was totally batshit crazy when I suggested it because he said nobody does this. It turns out it works great. So that was my biggest contribution. I mean, I had a lot of other stuff, but that was my totally unconventional twist, which was fun.
0: Plus you brought all the money. So you did add more than just that too.
1: Yeah, I did finance it. You do know the restaurant joke, right? I have to say this, the how to make a small fortune in restaurants. You tell me, because I've heard it before, but I know it's funny. So go ahead. Start with a large fortune. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Yeah, so it's absolutely true. Getting your money back is very difficult in restaurants. And so thinking about that is, I can't say I've cracked the code entirely. Gotab, however, is really my company that I started in 2016 is really focused on that, which is how to make restaurants more profitable and at the same time, make the guests happier. So I sold Siteworks in 2012, stayed on board till 2015-ish, but was only sort of part-time as that faded out and then was on some other technical, some technology company boards and advisory and that sort of stuff as I was starting Caboose, but I was never full-time at Caboose and then ultimately started GoTab in 2016.
0: Just looking back at Caboose, how many hours were you working when you were actually end up doing that? And then is there any other lessons we can learn from that before we move on to your newest venture today, the GoTab?
1: You're saying how many hours at Caboose was I working?
0: Yeah. Because you said it wasn't kind of like your full-time thing, it sounded like. I don't know if you're trying other side businesses to see what you want to do next.
1: Yeah. So I was playing with a couple of different businesses that I was thinking about pursuing. Realistically, I don't work 40-hour weeks anyway. So I probably spent 20 to 30 hours, some weeks, probably 40, some weeks more after my regular job. But the thing with the restaurant is the restaurant actually happens on the opposite schedule of the normal work week, right? So you can go work an eight-hour office job and still work in a restaurant because everything happens in a restaurant after hours.
0: But during the day, you're saying, did you have another job as well or no?
1: Yeah, I still worked at SiteWorks till 2015.
0: Okay. So that whole time you're still doing SiteWorks basically. Okay. I didn't know it took that long.
1: It just wasn't as full time. So up till selling SiteWorks in 2012, I was traveling a lot, like 50% of the time. You can't really do a whole lot on the side, nor did I try to. And, but once they sort of hired a new CEO and... He'd start bringing in his team. I was really there just to support sort of my clients and uh, help with other sort of questions they may have. And then
0: as you got out of Siteworks and you still have, obviously had a Caboose Brewing at the time, is that where you dreamt up the idea of GoTab?
1: Yep. We thought it would be popular. It was really popular. I refer to starting it in a beer desert. So because there weren't a lot of breweries at the time in Northern Virginia, there really wasn't a brewery for five miles around. There are plenty more now, but in 2012 there weren't. And so when we opened in 2015, it was people were excited to have it there. It had local food supplied by local farmers because my wife ran the farmers markets, sort of as a volunteer. And then it was on the bike trail. So people would run past our bike pass and think, boy, that looks really great to go grab a beer. So that go tab started because the original caboose would have pretty extensive lines and people couldn't get tables. The other reason is that, unfortunately, if you're in the restaurant business, Yelp can be a pretty painful experience, If you, especially if you've never dealt with uh, guest consumer feedback, particularly if you're doing something unusual. So not having been in a sort of B2C operator mode, learn that social media is tough. I think you mentioned your very first thing, like some of the things that people say in feedback to your podcast, some of the time you're like, really? What compelled you to say that? You know, this is our first restaurant, so we weren't doing it perfectly, and I don't think we made any pretense to be doing it perfectly. Our biggest challenge was that we didn't do what people expected us to do, which was at that time breweries never had in our area. Breweries didn't even have food, so for the most part, breweries were just beer, and we were trying to do like high quality food, which people thought, "Why is your food so expensive?" And we're like, "Well, because we're doing scallops, we're doing great local food provided by farmers in the area," and everybody's like, "Well." that's really expensive. Or why is that so fancy? Like, well, if you make really good beer, wouldn't you want to have it with really good food? And so early on, that was, you know, kind of painful learning that most people wanted a cheap hamburger and french fries with their beer, even if their beer was not cheap. And it's like, well, that's weird. Why would you do that? So that was educational to me, was just learning the um, sort of guest sentiment or what their expectations were and how you had to shift those expectations. But like you said, they don't always say those things in the nicest ways. So you feel pretty shitty about yourself.
0: Yeah. And I'll say one other thing. Sorry, I know I'm cutting in here again. It's just like, maybe I said on this interview or not, they can leave me bad reviews. It's my podcast and it's not really going to hurt me that much. But for people who have restaurants like this, I'm like, that hurts way more, you know, because I always think about that. I'm like, okay, you did nothing really to me. But when someone's writing something and they're complaining about something that's even outside of the restaurant doing something bad, they're really screwing them.
1: Well, it's funny, we got so many bad reviews because people couldn't get a table. And I'm like, wait a second, I'm getting a shitty review because you couldn't get a seat. So clearly, our restaurant is actually pretty good because we couldn't get you a table. But you're writing a bad review, which basically dings my revenue, and it's going to give me a bad reputation online because you couldn't get a table. And of course you can't get them to take those down. And they say, well, that's their opinion. I'm like, it's their opinion, but I don't understand how this is founded on my business. The only thing it says is it should actually be a positive review because we have high demand. So to be fair, we did not do everything perfectly. And some of those bad reviews were legitimate and it was educational. It did cause me to start GoTab because my thought was, well, we got this line, we can't get everybody seated. How do I get people in and out faster? And so GoTab was originally around you know, solving the payments problem because getting your check at a full service fancy restaurant can sometimes be painful, especially when you want to leave. So the consumer wants to leave, the restaurant doesn't really benefit by slowing down the paying process. It really didn't benefit anybody for the way it worked before. And GoTab originally started just to solve the payment problem. Then it started solving the ordering problem. GoTab was designed to solve the payment problem initially in hospitality, meaning that I want to leave. So why do I have to wait on a server to bring my check and then hand them a credit card and then wait on them to go away and then wait on them to come back? The server doesn't want to be doing that. I don't want to wait on them. So that was our original vision in 2016. And plenty of people had tried to solve it. Our big difference is we never intended for people to install an app. We never intended for people to set up an account. And we wanted to be able to do it four clicks or less. So that's what we started as. In 2017, we started taking orders, although it was a little clunky because you couldn't use a QR code. And in 2018, the iPhone came out with QR code support. And when we opened the second brewery, which was much bigger, we essentially rolled out simultaneously Gotab's QR-based ordering in October 2018, which coincided with Caboose's second location, which was essentially a 10,000 square foot brewery, which is a decent size. And so it was enlightening, and we quickly learned that we were onto something. And uh, GoTab, for sort of 2016-2017, was trying to find a way to change consumer behavior, and candidly, wasn't working. But when we kind of got you know this QR thing sorted in 2018, we're like, holy shit, people like this. People like this a lot more than they like standing in line. And they also like it. You know, we would get beers to the tables within a minute. And I mean, why wouldn't you be happy if you sat on the patio of a restaurant? ordered a beer with your phone on an app that you didn't install or sorry, on a, you know, from a QR that you've never seen before or used. And four clicks later, there's a beer in front of you and it took you 50 seconds. So most people were like, wow, that's really cool. Not everybody did it. It was mostly, you know, sort of younger tech oriented people. Not everybody was signed up for it and realized this is 2018. This is pre COVID. It was also pre QRs in the U S like most people didn't know how to scan a QR. And in fact, the first three days that that restaurant opened, I personally stood there next to the line that was going all the way out the door and would walk up and down the line, teaching people how to scan a QR code with their phone and then show them that if they went to their table and scanned the QR code that was on their table, they could order a beer and not have to stand in the line. And I would be able to peel about 50% of the people off and send them over and grab a table. And then they didn't have to stand in the line and they were happy. and. I was happy because it turned out like my product, GoTab, was actually working.
0: Kind of reminds me of, I guess, self-service checkout at the supermarkets probably took several years too, you know, (laughs) as far as like being scared of scanning it themselves. So some people still actually still wait in line, even though you're showing them how to use it.
1: Yeah, I agree. And part of it's just the clunkiness. The early self-service ones were that great. And to be fair, like our product was out in 2018. It wasn't that great. It was admittedly we were kind of the only people we knew doing it. (laughs) Um, In fact, we were the only ones we knew doing it because we thought of the idea on our own and coincided it with the iPhone release and coincided with the new restaurant. But people didn't even know how to scan a QR. COVID hit and everything changed. I don't know how much time we have, but that's like a whole nother story in and of itself because that was pretty bonkers.
0: Yeah, we'll fast forward to that. I guess just one other thing. So over the first couple of years, when did you start becoming profitable with this? Go tab.
1: I mean, GoTab not profitable. We're basically funded by high net worth individuals. So yourself? No, we have about 40 high net worth individuals that have invested. There's more adding all the time. I actually I do talk to, and I just talked to a private equity group today, but I'm not aggressively seeking capital, meaning I don't go knocking on doors. The reality is I'm a product person. I love building great things. I think I probably said this at the beginning. I love building amazing products that people love to use. Like that is what I'm passionate about. And I also love selling. So if I can do the two of those things, that's what I want to spend my entire day. What I don't love doing is talking to... People like me on podcasts? No, no, no. No, I like (laughs) talking to people like you. (laughs) No, no. I actually like that. What I don't love doing is talking to finance people. I will say the person I talked to today was great. They said everything I wanted to hear, which is we care about the product. We care about what the consumers see. We have opinions on those sorts of things. Most in my experience, unfortunately, most venture capitalists, and I, maybe this is good or bad, you know, maybe this is bad to say publicly, but most venture capitalists don't actually care about the product. They won't even trust their own opinion of the product, which is interesting because I, as a stock market investor, I only invest in products I use, which is not a new philosophy. That's actually a very old philosophy. I think it's Peter Lynch. So Benjamin Graham, I'm a big advocate of, but I believe it's Peter Lynch who only invested in the products that he uses. So I invest and I've done very well in the public stock market by investing in products that I use and love.
0: Yeah. And we talked about that because you said you invested in GameStop too.
1: (laughs) No, I I did not invest in GameStop. I used to play video games as a kid. I don't have time anymore. But Apple, I made a a lot of money in Apple. When plenty of people would say Apple's going down, I would kind of reassess my opinion of the product and say, like, what does competition really look like? And I would invest. And you could have done that many times over the last 15 years. And it wasn't just when people thought Apple was way back before the iPod, this is way after the iPhone, people many times would say, oh, it's not worth it. Apple's had a P to E of 12 for a very long time in history. Sorry, I don't mean to get into investing.
0: Price to earnings ratio, which seems like it doesn't matter anymore, but that used to be old, right?
1: (laughs) These days, I don't know what drives these financial investments because I'm like, that doesn't make any sense, but that's a whole nother discussion. So anyway, I love finances, but I love finances based on fundamentals. And that doesn't seem to be the way the world works these days.
0: Yeah. So I guess for GoTab, you're saying once COVID hit, did your company blow up then? Or what was the transition over the last couple of years?
1: So 2019, we were knocking on doors, trying to find places that looked like, candidly, my wife's restaurant, like Caboose Commons. And we found some, not a lot. It was probably like one in 20 restaurants would entertain us. Plenty of restaurants would say, you guys are bonkers. Plenty, including actually some venture capitalists. I, I can remember one venture, venture capitalist in particular when we were trying to raise money, and I was flirting with the idea of bringing in institutional investor. They actually said to me, "QRs are stupid. These have no future." And I was like, "Well, but they actually do. They're they're really big in Asia, and you know that sounds kind of like David Hasselhoff. I'm really big in Germany." But I kind of contradicted him, and he's like, "Well, you know, I think you're totally wrong." To his credit, he went and did some research and came back later and said, you know, you're actually right. 30% of all transactions in Asia start with a QR code. And this was in 2019. But basically, people told us we were dumb, whether they're restaurants or venture capitalists. And so we just kept uh, you know, a pretty lean business, stringing along with uh, individual investments from different people that I would show the product who bought into the vision, which is much bigger, by the way, than just restaurant ordering. That's part of our big vision, but that's not all. and that's been the approach and to be clear some of that money actually a substantial amount of that money is my money so i am also an investor
0: also what's more important it's your time you know that you're putting into this so what was your customer growth would you say from like pre pandemic and then after post pandemic
1: yeah about 20 times customer count but volume revenue wise we uh, 100 times revenue is funny, kind of all the people who told us no in 2019 became our customers in 2020. And actually, some of them are on our advisory board. They're really smart people. And in fact, even when they told me no, I couldn't entirely disagree with them because their criticism was, well, my customers aren't ready for this yet, right? And I was like, well, yeah, I know your restaurant and I know your customers and, and you're kind of right. Like. <laughs> I didn't say that to them, of course, but that was my thought. And so what we were always trying to do in 2019 pre-COVID was find the right profile, which was counter service restaurants that really wanted to be lean on labor and highly efficient and also weren't really a great place for full service restaurants. So since COVID, we actually now work in a lot of full service restaurants and our product has expanded substantially to allow a full service model. But GoTab is a very different experience from what most people have seen in a restaurant. And unfortunately, the only way really to describe GoTab is for people to experience it. Most of our business actually comes from restaurant tours who go to a restaurant that uses GoTab. And then they're like, holy shit, this is so different. This is awesome. But they can't imagine it because it's pretty different.
0: Yeah. So if someone was listening right now and had a restaurant and they're interested, what's the best way for them to find out how they could get in contact with GoTab and use it?
1: probably go to our websites. Easiest way, gotab.io. Gotab.com will get you there too. But if you want to go to the informational site, the easiest way is just go to about.gotab.com and that'll take you directly to the informational site. Unfortunately, we're not as good at telling the story on our website because we have found that you can tell a story till you're blue in the face. But it's kind of like the difference between a taxi and an Uber the first time you do it. You get to the end of an Uber ride and you get out and you're like, whoa, shit, that was like all that petty, annoying stuff that makes it unpleasant just disappeared. And I didn't have to do anything. I got in, I played on my phone, I called my friend, or whatever, I got out, and that was it. Like all the annoying stuff disappeared. That's kind of what people have the first time they use GoTab, I'm like, wow, that took the unfun stuff away. And I could focus on the fun stuff of hospitality.
0: I'm looking at right now on YouTube. So it looks like you put together a good video on it. Maybe if you threw that on your webpage too, it might even help.
1: Yeah, it's they're there, they're sprinkled throughout. So restaurants, you know, prior to COVID were about 800 billion in revenue and you had roughly, you know, 700,000 restaurants, 600,000 restaurants, maybe now a restaurant is not a restaurant. It's not a restaurant. Everybody sort of lumps them all into into one category because they say they all make food and they all serve it to you. Uh, But there's a big difference between, you know, a Chinese takeout place, a high-end dine-in steak restaurant, a brewery or a beer hall. And then you have like all kinds of stuff in between. And because they're also different, the unfortunate challenge you'll see is if you happen to be that steakhouse, you come to our website and you see QR ordering on a phone, you're like, well, that's not me. And so we have this challenge of going, how do you get the right restaurant to look at the right operational model without turning them off? Because that's what will happen is like a fine dining restaurant will come to GoTab and say, oh, that'll never work for me. And we do have fine dining restaurants using GoTab.
0: If you have one landing page and if you clicked, if you're a fine dining restaurant where it kind of gives them a different website really the same website, but I guess the funnel is more specific for them because I'm just trying to think anyone else who's listening to if they wanted to figure out more about it, because you said you basically kind of have to see it. And I understand what you're saying. I just didn't know there's any easier way, but I understand from your perspective too. Yeah. If it's a steak restaurant listening now, and then they're seeing a Chinese restaurant, they might just not be interested at all versus maybe if they had a click through of like what type of restaurant they are. But if they go to com, that would give me enough that I'm like, I don't just see one type of restaurant. I think I'd be open enough, hopefully, if you own a restaurant to look into it a little bit more.
1: Yeah, hopefully. It's just, it's more different than they realize. And I'm trying to think where the nearest one would be by you. I don't know off the top of my head. But really, we run a Guinness brewery up here in Baltimore. They're a U.S.-based brewery, which is like a huge facility. And we just got two inbound leads from other restaurateurs who went to Guinness in the last week. And the funny thing is these are restaurateurs who knew about GoTab, who knew that we were in their hometown, and they wouldn't look at us because they thought we were something different. I'm like, I don't I don't know what to do. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Because I was gonna say one other thing I've always found interesting is um if it's easy to throw a map on there of like what locations have it, but you're saying those people even knew because I'm thinking if it was in the city, like I'm in Jacksonville, Florida. And so if I like had a restaurant here and you said, hey, another restaurant here has it, then I might go check out that restaurant just to see what it looks like, or at least it make me feel more confident about it.
1: Well, let me give you an example. Like Ruth's Chris is a client of ours.
0: Okay. Yeah. I got two of them here.
1: So, but they only use us for takeout and delivery because right now they're not doing a ton of dine-in and like there's, there's a bunch of technical reasons they don't use us yet. I mean, we hope to get there, but then we also have other places doing the same We also have, you know, some high-end restaurants using us for dine-in that don't use us for takeout. And so unfortunately, because the way restaurants think, they think each of these different features or functionalities is a separate product. And our product actually sits across all those things. So we do takeout, we do delivery, we do dine-in, we actually do e-commerce, which isn't normal. Like most people don't buy all those products in one place, nor do any other products actually offer all those features in one place. So one of the challenges you'll see is if I say, oh, hey, well, go check out Riz Chris, you'll think, oh, it's a takeout product, except it's not. If I sent you to a different place, like Stone Beer Garden in Escondido, California, or Liberty Station or Ballast Point out in California, you think, oh, it's a solution for breweries, but it's not. <laughs> so it, that's what I mean is they all feel very different from a consumer side and even from a restaurateur side, but it's all the same technology.
0: It's like Salesforce right? You can make that CRM into all these different things, but it's just so robust. Like I don't think anyone ever buys just Salesforce. They usually have an add-on on on top of it that deals with their specific niche, I think is usually to try to help them figure it out. So yeah, I guess I understand the issue there. So how do you think you're going to get around that? Just hire more salespeople and keep explaining it to people or what?
1: Pretty much. That's what we do. Continue to get better at marketing. What we do now is we actually invite journalists and restaurateurs to dinners at different venues so they can see it in different operational models. Because again, that's like people see it and then they go and a light bulb goes on. So that's just kind of how we have to get people to realize this is the way to operate. And, and people will tend to say things like, oh, this is the way it's all, oh, everything's going to be in the future.
0: So Holly, I've got an idea for our road trip. How about we do some Q&A from our Patreon members? What do you say?
2: Do you think they're really going to like that?
0: Probably not, but we need to give them more content so they get more bang for their buck in their Patreon membership. I'll tell them where we're going. We're going to the Grand Canyon and turn around, and we'll see what happens. But I've been brainstorming a name for this set of Q&A, Holly. Are you ready for it? I finally think I came up with something clever.
1: All right, hit me with it.
0: All right, so we're going with our two dogs, George and Genevieve. They're in the back seat of the CRV. And then Holly's driving right now. But this is the name that I came up with. Doggy style, colon, a peak from behind, dot, 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 our route 66 road trip. So you get it? we got two dogs, so we'll call it doggy style. And then a Peak. since we're both peaks, we'll spell it P-E-E-K. And then this is a route 66 road trip and that episode is out right now for all patreon members so just check your patreon feed well yeah i think it just takes time just like what i just said there with salesforce like i think most people might have even listened now they thought it was just like kind of one big crm but you're like dude it's so robust like you need to go with something that plugs on top of it to kind of figure it out and so it just takes time to figure that out before I guess you make a switch to an integration like this, right? For some of these people, even though it's not really even a switch, it's just kind of an add-on to help them, it seems like.
1: Uh yeah. Well I think the bigger problem is that our product can be an add-on, but it can also be a platform. So a lot of people are like, oh, I just want to buy ordering. That's great. We can bolt that onto Oracle or Micros. Or in some cases, actually we're just replacing all of those systems. So all the systems come out and our system goes in and replaces them all. It's not easy. Yeah, it's it's not easy to explain, and you're explaining it to non-technical people, right? Restaurants aren't exactly technologists.
0: Well, unless they own Caboose Brewing.
1: Yeah, unless they are technologists <laughs> who became restaurateurs. Yeah, right.
0: So, did you end up selling the restaurant and no longer in it? I know you said your wife ran it, but is she still doing that?
1: No, she actually owns them all entirely, and she manages them. She stepped back very recently a little bit, but she still oversees everything there. She loves it. Is that hard for y'all as married?
0: Is she working different hours? And you just work all the time, to be honest. But you know, if she's working evening, that's way harder to me versus if she like had a nine to five.
1: Well, she's not a general manager, so she doesn't have to work the evenings, which is nice. She generally runs a lot of the finances and basic things like payroll and checks in for quality and that sort of stuff. So she is on a more office hours type schedule.
0: Well, thanks for coming on and again doing a part two here. I guess looking back on your experience. Do you have any words of wisdom for anyone who's listening as an entrepreneur?
1: There's probably an easier way to do it than I did, but uh, I'm not sure what it is. So I don't know that I have any words of wisdom.
0: That's pretty deep. I appreciate that. <laughs> if anyone wanted to contact you and say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach out?
1: You can just email me. I don't know. Do people get spammed if I put my email address on here? I guess if they actually listen this far, then go for it. So it's just uh, tim at gotab.io.
0: Nice. Well, I appreciate it. Usually I ask people just to thank you for doing the interview because you took the time to do it. So hopefully that's all you get. If you get any dirty dick pics or anything, let me know. (laughs) I'll stop telling people to give out their email. (laughs)
1: Yeah. 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 No worries.
0: I had one guy give him a cell phone. I told him to stop. I'm like, you sure? He's like, no, it's fine. I'm like, okay, you can give out yourself. That's a little too much for me, but yeah. Well, I appreciate again, you coming on and sharing your story and doing it here in two parts.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was nice uh, being on. Thanks for having me, Austin. And uh, yeah, it was a pleasure.
0: Special thanks to our newest Patreon members. So thank you to Joshua Duncan, Lamsey Reeves in Louisville, Kentucky, Joe in Walnut Creek, California, Jonathan Cogley in San Diego, who you heard on episode 85, Blaine Wilson, who's from South Africa, but now living in London, Eric in Troy, Michigan, Asante in Chicago, Luis Gonzalez, Sam Gilb in Santa Cruz, California, and Alexander Falk in Sweden. Hope you're all enjoying these special Patreon episodes and can't wait to see you on that next group call. If you want to join these smart people, then become a member today. Just go to austinsbigp.com. That's austinsbigp.com to sign up and become a member today. Become a Patreon member right now, right now, right now, right now. now.